Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. So we are um, continuing here at New Life through a sermon series that we're calling uh, Route 66. And um, what I am attempting to do by the grace of God is to um, deliver one sermon per Bible book going through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, because I want to help you see the overall story, the grand storyline and narrative of the scriptures from the beginning to the end. It's very important for us to be able to read the Bible properly. Now, I've made um, an exception in the book of Genesis because Genesis is so utterly foundational, so we're giving three sermons to the book of Genesis. So we started two weeks ago looking at the origin of the universe, very reasonable and logical place to begin. Last week we looked at the origin of sin, absolutely central and foundational to the story because the Bible is about what God is doing about the sin problem. And we heard last week this very first promise of the gospel from Genesis 3.15 where This promise was made that a descendant of Eve was going to come and this descendant would be a serpent-crushing, life-giving Messiah. And that set forth this narrative, this storyline that is causing us to read this story wondering who this person is and when this person is going to come. And, And here are two questions that are going to be constantly before us as we continue down Route 66. And the one question is this, how is God going to fulfill this plan, this promise of sending this descendant, this Messiah? How is he going to do it? Who is this person? Where is he from? What's he going to be like? That's Our eyes are open for that as we look through this story. But the second question that is constantly going to be before us is, is this. Will the people of God believe what God promises? That's the constant ongoing theme. And that theme is still true for you and me. And I've been telling you that this isn't just a story about somebody else. This is a story in which you are all an integral part And so the question is raised for you. You're looking to see how is God going to fulfill his promises for you, and the question for you is will you believe God's promises even when it seems like he's not working, even when it seems like he's forgotten you, even when it seems like he's fallen asleep at the wheel. And so what is going to happen as we're going through this story is we're going to find that very often it seems like this redemptive project is lost, It's going to seem like God has disappeared. We're going to see that things look like they're completely caving in and God's attempt to bring this Messiah has failed. And and so we're going to find ourselves confused in this way in in, in many ways. So, you know, for example, um, some of you are Indianapolis Colts fans and you might know that the Colts have a, a new coach and this guy's name is Frank Reich. And uh, Frank Reich actually happens to be um, a a believer who is in our tradition, a Reformed Presbyterian, actually, Frank Reich. And Frank Reich's kind of claim to fame, (coughs) excuse me, claim to fame as an athlete is that he was the quarterback of the Buffalo Bills, and in 1993, he led the Bills to victory when they were behind 35-3. And so this has kind of gone down in history as the kind of greatest comeback in NFL history. 35-3, to and he leads the Bills back um, to defeat 
the Oilers. And so I, I didn't see the game, but I can imagine people watching that game and seeing the Oilers down or seeing the Bills down 35-3 to and, and just thinking to themselves, this game is over. I mean, there, there, is, there is no way the Bills can work their way out of this. This game is finished. And that, that feeling of just thinking things are over is the feeling that you're going to get a lot as we go through this Ruth 66, this Bible story. You're going to look and, and say, how is it that God is going to do what he says he's going to do? We're going to be tempted to think this is going to take a miracle for God to get out of this. And that's exactly what he does over and over again. So we've reached here now to Genesis 12. Obviously, I've skipped over a, a lot of material in chapters 4 through um, 11. But again, we began with origin of the universe. Last week, origin of sin. And today, what we're looking at is the origin of the nation of Israel, which is absolutely foundational and central to the biblical story. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to start with chapter 11, verse 27, and I'm going to move forward to chapter 12, uh, and I'm going to read uh, through verse 4, actually. 11, 27 through 12, 4. It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. God in heaven, by your spirit, would you open our eyes and teach us, instruct us, and enable us to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, you might be saying, okay, you read this. How does this suggest that God is down 35 to 3? <laughs> I mean, what is it about this that suggests that the project is, is almost lost? Well, there's two things. One is the story of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. Uh, we're not going to take time to go into that in great deal, but you might know the story uh, where we see that all of these people throughout the world uh, get together to build this tower up to God to make a name for themselves, it says. They are seeking to exalt humankind at the expense of God. They want to expel God from the picture. And so the whole human race is kind of gathering together against God and his purposes. 
And at the end of chapter 11, it seems like, you know, they, they, they might get something done here. But the more, um, uh, I guess, chilling verse for the purpose of this story is found in verse 30. Um, we, we see here that um, Abram has been born to Terah, and Abram marries this woman named Sarai, and um, in the verses actually that preceded this, verses 10 through 26 of chapter 11, you'll see a, a list of all of these descendants. And so those are there for a reason, because remember Genesis 3.15 said it was going to be a descendant of Eve who was going to come. And so we're given this list of descendants. Here's all these people that have been born down all of these years. And the reason that's there is because we're looking for the descendant that was promised in Genesis 3.15. But then we get to verse 30, and Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, you ought to look at that and go, what? What's going to happen? How in the world can the descendant, the, the Messiah promised in Genesis 3.15, come and save the world if Sarai is barren? Game over. And that, that's the tension that we're beginning to feel. What is God going to do? That should be the questions that we begin to ask. And so God does three things here that are absolutely foundational themes that we're going to see throughout the whole rest of the Bible and through the New, uh, Old Testament in particular. But the first one is this. We see that God chooses a people. This is how he begins with this situation. He, he's going to start again this redemptive plan by choosing a people. So you see that in verses 1 and 2 of um, Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I'm choosing you, Abram, so that you will be the father of a great nation. Now you'll see something that's kind of interesting, a contrast here um, between this verse and what has come before in the Tower of Babel because in the Tower of Babel we see that the people um, gathering in rebellion against God, they say, let us make a name for ourselves. God comes to Abram and he says, I'm going to bless you and make your name great. If anybody's name is going to be great, God says, it's going to be because I'm going to do it, not because mankind is going to gather it and do it for themselves. And the reason that Abram's name is going to be great is because he is going to be the father of this, this great nation, this nation that is going to represent God to the whole world. This is going to be a nation that will be able to Show who God is by the way they live. People are going to know what God is like, what his character is like, what his nature is like, when they see the way this great nation lives. And this nation, as you know, is called the nation of Israel. And the hope of the entire world now depends on what God is going to do through this one nation. And so this becomes main focus here. We're going to be talking about Israel repeatedly through the story of the Old Testament. And we're going to find that God is absolutely committed to this nation. He calls this nation his treasured possession. He calls it a holy nation. He is so fiercely committed to this nation that you'll see here um, in verse 3 that he says, those who bless this nation, I'm going to bless, but, but the person who dishonors Israel, my people, I will curse that person. 
because I am not going to allow anybody to interfere with the integrity of this nation. This is God's plan for the nation of Israel. He, he has enormous aspirations for Israel. Now, as we go through this story, this is going to be a constant theme, is that Israel does not live up to what God is calling them to do. And that becomes a problem. And that gets us asking the question, okay, Israel was God's plan, but Israel doesn't seem to be performing so well, so what's going to happen? So that'll come up as we go through it. But, I mean, one thing we can say, uh, at the very least, as we just look historically, is that Israel really has been a great nation, hasn't it? I mean, you know, Israel still exists today. I mean, this is one thing that ties the Bible to reality. Israel is still in the news all the time. This is something that Winston Churchill said years ago. He says, some people like the Jews and some do not, but no thoughtful man can deny the fact that they are, beyond any question, the most formidable and most remarkable race which has appeared in the world. Now, we might argue with that and maybe disagree with that, you know, but my, my point is that this is a guy of Winston Churchill's stature saying this, making this observation about Israel in probably the 1940s or so. You know, how many, 3,000 years after this passage was written, roughly. I mean, this should at least make you interested in this story here. You know, this is not a fairy tale, it's not a myth, right? That's what I've been telling you. This is a story of our world, a story of reality, a story of the nation of Israel. But when God promises here that Israel's going to be a great nation, he's got something in mind maybe a little different than Winston Churchill had in mind. What, what God had in mind is that from this nation, it's going to be made great because it's from this nation that the Redeemer is going to come. This promise from Genesis 3.15 about a descendant, that person is going to come out of this nation. This nation is going to be the vehicle, the structure through which I produce this nation. So Sarai is barren, yeah, but God's not done. And he comes to Abram and he says, Abram, you're going to be the father of this nation. Now, what I find really interesting here about the way God calls Abram is is this. He, He calls him in a very surprising way. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you wouldn't necessarily expect that God would call a guy like Abram. You know, when we hear about Abram, by the way, Abram's name is changed later to Abraham. So when I say Abram, Abraham, that's the same person. Sarai, her name is later changed to Sarah. So those are are the same people. But when we think of Abram, we generally think of this, you know, really godly guy in the Old Testament. And we kind of think, well, I can certainly understand why God would choose a guy like him because Abram is this, this great man. But that's getting ahead of the story a little bit because Abram, friends, was not brought up in a nice, healthy, strong, conservative Christian family. Abram was not a guy who, you know, believed all the right evangelical doctrine. You know what? Abram was probably a worshiper of the sun. When we see all this stuff at the end of chapter 11 about Abram, and his family, what we'll find later when we look to the book of Joshua is that Joshua, uh, is that uh, Terah and this family were, were not followers of the God of Israel. Look what it says. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served 
other gods. I mean, who knows what kind of strange gods they were worshiping. But here's another example of how the story seems to be grinding to a halt. People don't even acknowledge God. They're not even worshiping him. They're not even following him. And yet God comes and chooses, this man chooses Abram to be the father of this great nation. And what we see here is the way God works, that is he sovereignly chooses whomever he wishes to do his work quite apart from any goodness or wisdom or morality that he might perceive in us. What we're seeing here, friends, is the beginning and the development of the doctrine of election. That is that God chooses his people unconditionally, not on the basis of what he foreknows they're going to do, not on the basis of how good or useful they are to his redemptive plan. We see this later in Deuteronomy. God makes this point, he's talking about Israel. He says, it was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, Israel, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. You know, I mean, God could have chosen Babylon or Egypt to be the great nation. You know, they were mighty nations at the time. God didn't choose them. God chose a sun worshiper. I mean, that ought to strike you as remarkable. This is the beginning of what, we're, what we call the doctrines of sovereign grace, that God chooses the most unlikely people for his purposes. And we see this in the New Testament as it applies to the gospel. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, not because of his own, excuse me, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before creation, that's when God determined to whom he was going to give grace. And it was independent of any good works that he might see in us. So, you know, you've heard this probably, you know, you get to the doctrine of predestination or election, you know, God's choice. It can be very, very um, controversial. But this doctrine should be humbling and encouraging to you. It should be very humbling to you, number one, because if you're a Christian, and, and here's the way a lot of Christians think, and, and maybe you don't have a problem with this, maybe it's just my issue, I don't know, but the way a lot of Christians think is, I'm a Christian and others aren't. I do the right thing, others don't. I'm going to heaven, others aren't. Therefore, I must be just a little bit better than everybody else. I'm one of the good people. I, I, I've made good decisions. I've made right decisions. Others have made wrong decisions. I'm better than other people. Now, you're not going to say it that way. I know that. You're not, that. Those words won't come out of your mouth, but down in your heart, don't you sometimes feel that way? Again, maybe it's only my issue. I don't know. But when you realize that God is sovereign in his choice, that should humble you because the reason that God has chosen you for salvation has nothing to do with how good or bad you are. It's, God didn't choose you because he thought you were going to be some great addition to the team. God chose you out of his love, out of his sovereign grace and wisdom. It's not because you pursued God, friends. It's because God has pursued you. That's why you're a Christian. 
And that's humbling. That's humbling. But it's also encouraging because you might be saying, God can't really use me. You might be a person who is wondering whether God could ever use you because you know the kind of life you've lived and the things that you've done and the, the people you've hurt. You know your history. You feel like I am too weird, I'm too odd, I'm too broken, I don't fit in. I'm not like other Christians. I go to the church and I see Christians, they act this way and I don't really feel like I connect with them. I don't fit. I don't have a place. God can't use me. That is so wrong-headed. I mean, the beauty of the gospel is that God is constantly, throughout this whole story, we're gonna see he's always choosing the most ill-equipped, unpredictable, broken down, messed up, dysfunctional people to do his will. And we're seeing this here in the way God is choosing Abram, a sun worshiper, who as the story goes on, we won't have time to look at it in Genesis because next week we're moving on to Exodus, but um, you'll see that there's a lot of dysfunction <laughs> in Abram's life. God uses them anyway. All right, so the second thing uh, is this. God promises then a land. He chooses Abram to make a great nation, and then he promises a land. At the end of uh, chapter 11, we see that Abram's family has settled in this place called Haran, verse 31, and then God breaks in, and you see this in verse one, where he calls Abram out of that place. He says, go from your country, that's Haran. He says, get out of that place, and, and leave your family behind even, and your kindred in your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. And so now there's that mention there of, of the word land, verse one. Now again, this becomes a huge deal throughout the Old Testament. I mean, we're gonna be talking a lot about the land. It's the land of Canaan, or uh, sometimes called the promised land. And it plays this enormous part in the story. And again, we can tie this to our current world because you know, people are still fighting over this land. I mean, all you gotta do is look in the news and the Palestinians and the Israelis are, are fighting and killing each other over this same bit of land that's being promised here in Genesis 12. Again, the Bible's about our world. It's about this reality. Now, the reason that the land is so important might escape us. There might be a lot of political reasons why that bit of real estate is such a big deal, but there are strong theological reasons why this land is so important and why God promises the land to Abram and the nation of Israel. And, and it's just this. Remember, friends, where the whole story began. It began in the Garden of Eden. It began on a piece of land. It began in a place, a place where Adam and Eve were loving each other, relating to each other perfectly. Adam and Eve were um, living in perfect, intimate fellowship with their creator, and Adam and Eve were working and cultivating and getting dirt under their fingernails as they managed the garden, the land, the place on earth that God put them. And as a result of their sin, God expelled them from the garden. Remember last week, like a landlord kicking out a tenant, he booted them out of the land. That was part of the curse. So part of redemption then is returning them to a land, to a place. 
God wants his people in a place. God wants his people to worship him on the earth. That's part of his plan. This is one of the biggest mistakes a lot of Christians make. Very often, people will become Christians, they'll place their faith in Jesus, they're promised that they're gonna go to heaven, and they begin focusing on heaven so much that everything between their conversion and going to heaven becomes a kind of irrelevant secondary parenthesis in their lives. Life on earth becomes irrelevant. It becomes unimportant. And Christians lose interest in history and studying the earth and caring for the environment because we're thinking to ourselves, it doesn't matter, it's all gonna be flushed and I'm gonna go to heaven one day, so who cares? But the promises of the land are telling us that God has created us to be earthly people and even though the curse has been placed upon us because of our sin, God's ultimate plan is that we would remain earthly people. And he wants us to enjoy our life on the land, in the earth. Now look at this promise that comes later in Deuteronomy chapter 8 about the land. Listen how this is described. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, fountains, springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, wheat, barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive trees, honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity. You will lack nothing, a land where stones are iron and cut out of the hills so you can dig copper. You shall eat, you're gonna be full, you're gonna be satisfied, and you're gonna bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. That's what God wants. He wants people of the earth. You know, sometimes Christians can be so spiritually minded they can be no earthly good sometimes. I mean, that, that is possible. Now, of course, we long to go to heaven. Of course, we long to be with Jesus. But don't let that cause you to dismiss life on this earth because it's important to God. Al Walter says this, the scope of redemption is as great as that of the fall. It embraces creation as a whole. If the whole creation is affected by the fall, then the whole creation is also reclaimed by Christ. So again, this is a theme we're just gonna have to be keeping in mind as we go through the story. Now, uh, notice here how God calls calls, calls, calls land. Uh, The passage I just shared with you from Deuteronomy about all the blessings of the land, Abram doesn't know that, does he? he? He doesn't know that there's all those blessings in the land because God says in verse one, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So God is saying, you know, you're just going to have to go, Abram, and you're going to have to follow me and trust me because I'm not showing you the land right now. Follow me, and then I'll show it to you later. And what we see here is another constant theme throughout the scriptures that is this willingness to believe, this willingness to follow God wherever he leads. And Abraham is a perfect example of this. We see here the essence of faith in Abram. Because what Abram says to God is not this, okay, God, I will follow you just as soon as you answer a few questions for me. What is this land going to be like? How long am I going to be there? Is there a place for my family? Am I going to be comfortable? Am I going to have everything I need? Tell me, God, answer my questions, then I'll follow you. No, 
God, God says, follow me now, and I'll show you. I'll answer these questions later. And that's the essence of faith, friends. When God calls you, he has no obligation to tell you everything about where he's calling you and where he's leading you. It's a matter of trust. Will you follow him or, or won't you? You might be thinking, yeah, you know, there's someone I want to share my faith with, but I don't know what it's going to do with my relationship, to my relationship with, with that person. I, I don't know. And until I figure that out, I'm not going to do it. You might say, I, I probably ought to be giving maybe a little more to the church, but I don't know what it's going to do to my budget. Until I get that question answered, I'm not going to do anything. You might think, I'm going to start a new ministry team or join a ministry team here, but, you know, I'm not really sure what it's going to do to my schedule. And until I figure that out, I'm not going to do it. But what God says is, no, follow me. Follow my call, and I'll tell you those things later. It's the essence of faith, and what we read later is that Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So God promises this land to Abram. Abram follows in faith. And then lastly, we have this great blessing to the world. God blesses the world. He chooses a people, he promises them a land, and then he blesses the world. God did indeed choose just one nation, the nation of Israel, but he didn't turn his back on the rest of the world because he chose this nation and Abram for a specific purpose. And you see it at the end of verse 2. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and in him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is choosing just one nation. That's right, and some people complain against that and say that's so narrow, that's, that's so discriminatory, but do you see that the reason that God has chosen this one nation is so that all nations would be blessed? And we see this in Isaiah, turn to me and be saved, God says. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There is no other. There's only one true God. But this one true God exists for a blessing to the entire world. I mean, just think of, of where Israel was situated. Um, it, it's, um, yeah, I don't know how well you can see that, but um, this is Israel right here. Israel is like placed in a crossroads among three continents. You've got uh, Asia, over here, Asia, up here, you've got Africa, down here, you've got Europe, up here, connected by the Mediterranean Sea, and here's Israel, this tiny little plot of land that God has specifically situated for the purpose of reaching the world. Do you know what the um, motto of the state of Indiana is? We are the crossroads of America, we're called. The crossroads of America. That is, the reason why is because the uh, city of Indianapolis, they had like four interstates that would come and connect. And so uh, Indiana is this place where all these uh, interstates are, are connecting. Well, Israel was the crossroads of the world for the sake of blessing the nations with the gospel. If you're a Christian, friends, do you know that you have been blessed so that you can be a blessing. The gospel has come to you so that through you the gospel can go to others. 
God has revealed himself to you so that through you, God can be revealed to the nations and to all the families on the earth. Your salvation is not just something given to you for your own personal private enjoyment. You have been saved to bless others. Why do we as a church exist? Why does new life exist? Do we exist so that we can just get together and have friends? So that we can come and listen to good music on Sunday mornings? So that we can learn about the Bible and fill our heads with a lot of knowledge? Is is that why we exist? Certainly there's good to all of those things, but I would say this to you, friends. We also are at a crossroads here. We're at the crossroads of River Road and County Road 500 West in Yorktown, and we've been put here for a purpose, to reach these neighborhoods that surround us, to be a blessing to Delaware County, and to be a blessing to the rest of the world. It's why our missions team is so important and their work is so valuable. It's why we planted a church last year, sent a group out to City Hope Fellowship in downtown Muncie. And so I want to leave you with that question. You've been blessed, Christian. How are you blessing others? How is that part of your ministry? Well, the question that might be rising in your minds here is, is how in the world can all of this happen? God choosing a people, God promising a land, God blessing the world, if Sarah is barren. How can this happen? And the answer to that is another question. Is anything impossible with God? Is anything impossible with God? We go through the story, we see that Isaac is born and God's plan moves ahead and we look ahead to the story of another woman who was promised she was going to have a baby and her issue was a lot more dire because it wasn't that she was barren, it was that she was a virgin. (laughs) And yet from that virgin, a baby was born. Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the descendant (laughs) that God promised, finally comes, dies on a cross, crushes the head of the serpent and is raised again to life. And that is the fulfillment of the story. Christ crucified and risen. And the question for all of you today and for me as well is do you believe it? Do you believe it? Let's pray. Lord, we do Thank you for your word. It is so rich and full and gracious. We are thankful for it. Help us as we move our way through the scriptures, enlighten our minds, soften our hearts, and help us in our unbelief to believe your promises, most of all the promise of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we close our service this morning singing Let Your Kingdom Come.